0: Well, if you have a Bible, open up the Colossians chapter 2. We are continuing our series today uh, called Is Christ Enough? We're looking, uh, we're walking through the letter that Paul uh, wrote to the church in the ancient city of Colossae in the first century. Uh, And so we're looking at this letter. He goes through a lot of really important things. But the real big question that Paul is seeking to answer, at least he wants the people of Colossae to answer, is, is Christ enough? Is he really enough for us? Or do we feel like we need something else, right? Do we need Jesus plus something else for our happiness, for our sense of purpose and meaning in life and fulfillment? what do do we really need? Paul's asking. And his answer is always emphatically, yes, Christ is enough, but here's why, right? And that's what he's showing them is here's why Christ is enough. So we're going to dig in this morning, but before we do, let's, let's pray. Let's ask Jesus to bless his word as we receive it this morning. Thank you, Jesus, again. For uh, your gospel and what you're doing in different cities across North America, Lord, just there in Portland, Lord. We pray for this new church. We pray for that family. We pray that you would continue to bless them and their efforts to win people to you. Jesus, we want to do the same. And I pray that you would help us today as we think through the gospel, as we think about you, that we would see you truly are enough for us in every part of our lives, in every area uh, Lord, let that be so true that we can't help but share this good news with others. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to focus on verses 11 through 15 of this letter in chapter 2. Uh, but before we get to those verses, I think it's helpful to read verses 6 through 10, uh, which is what last week's sermon was on. So let's let's read verses 6 through 10, and then uh, we're going to move on and, and go through 11 through 15 as well. But Starting in verse 6, Paul says this, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Paul, in these verses, makes a strong case As he already has in this letter, a strong case that as creator God, Christ is the ultimate source of all truth in this world. So Paul says, root yourselves in him, walk in him. Everything in this world will ultimately answer to Christ. And Paul really wants the Colossians to never forget that. It's something that we always have to keep coming back to in life because it's so easy in the world we live in to get distracted, right? So maybe you feel some days like you're close to the Lord if you're walking with Him and you're rooting yourself in His truth, but you kind of drift away from that naturally with the distractions of the world and the pleasures of the world and just the the busyness of our lives. We drift in this direction where we don't really root ourselves, we don't discipline ourselves to to think about Christ, to think about the gospel, what it means for us, our true identity, Paul says, no, you have to keep coming back. You have to keep remembering who Jesus really is and who you really are, right? If you are a follower of Jesus, what does that mean for you? And so Paul wants these Colossians as he would want us today to truly believe that Jesus is enough, Every day, for every purpose and everything in our life. So to help these people remember, right, these, these Colossians, Paul, he references four symbols or four metaphors that he uses in verses 11 through 15 that will really stick in their minds and, and will help them remember who they really are in Christ, as Christ's followers, okay, So let's read verses 11 through 15 and you're going to see some of these symbolic things come up that Paul's addressing and we're going to talk about those in detail afterwards. So verse 11, Paul says this, he says, In him, in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling, The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we see four, four different symbols here four different things that, that Paul's using symbolically as metaphors: circumcision, baptism, the record of debt, and the triumphal victory parade that he mentions in verse 15. We'll get to the details of that later. But, but there's really one of these. There's really one of these uh, symbols that encapsulates the other three, and that is baptism. You see, by actually looking at baptism, that Paul mentions here we can see why he's using those other three symbols because they really all or, or baptism speaks to all of them now when we talk about baptism baptism is something that you know there's there's different opinions about baptism in our, our Christian world today uh, we here at Kernan are Baptists, right so we'll talk about what that means I guess a little bit later uh you'll you'll find out all right uh, so we obviously think very highly of whatever baptism is as baptists. we believe in baptism, okay but as you go and maybe you have visited different churches and different denominations of Christian churches, and, and perhaps you grew up uh, in different denominations, you know, there's some debate there. There's some debate between Christian denominations as to, you know, when, right, the timing of your baptism. Should it happen when you're an infant? Should it happen uh, after you were saved as a teenager, as an adult? Um, you know, there's there's debate about the mode of baptism. You know, should you be uh, sprinkled? Should they pour water over your head or on your forehead? You know, should you be fully dunked into the tub and come out of the tub? Right? There's there's different opinions, right, uh, that we see on baptism in our world today and in our American culture. But I think, regardless of your uh, specific opinion about the timing or the mode of baptism, whatever your re- religious background may be, right? I think. All of us, and so Baptists included, uh, I think a lot of us, we become so familiar with the idea of baptism, right? It's so familiar to the church world that I think we sometimes, maybe, maybe it loses its depth of meaning, Right? We see it happen in what we call a baptistry, right? Up there, that's what that is back there behind me, right? We see people go under the water. We see them come out. You know, we, we see baptisms. We hear about baptism. And it's just part of the Christian life, we know. But just like anything else in life, you can become so familiar with something that it almost loses its meaning, right? Its depth and its importance in a way. Baptism is something that is often misunderstood. There's a funny illustration here. In Robert Newton Peck's novel, A Day No Pigs Would Die, there's a scene where a boy is, a little boy, is confused about what baptism is. And particularly, he's confused about who these Baptists are, right? And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he says, I'd heard about Baptists from Jacob, Henry's mother. According to her, Baptists were a strange lot. They put you in the water to see how holy you are. Then they ducked you under the water. And it doesn't matter if you can swim or not. If you you didn't come up, you died and went to hell. But if you did come up, it was even worse. You had to be a Baptist. (laughs) All right, okay, fair enough. <laughs> now, we are a Baptist church, all right? So we're a little offended by this humor, right? <laughs> but this little boy, he, he's confused, right? He doesn't know exactly what baptism is, right? But we are Baptists here at Kernan, and hey, that means we're, we're known for really two things, right? We're known for potluck dinners, all right? We had one last night, it was great, right? And we're known for the kinds of baptisms that you need to bring a change of clothes right, for afterward because you are going all the way under the water, right? You're going all the way under and you are coming all the way back up, all right? <laughs> but if we're not careful, right? If we're not careful, even we Baptists can misunderstand or lose our appreciation for what baptism really is. So today in this text, you know what I think we see here? I think we see the beauty of baptism. I think that's exactly what we see here, the beauty of baptism. So what is baptism exactly? Well, baptism is a symbolic expression, all right? It's a, if you could describe it in two words, that's, that's a very short way to describe the act of baptism. It is a symbolic expression of things that have already happened to you. It's a symbolic expression, expression of something that has already happened to you. Now, baptism itself, like I said, it's symbolic. It doesn't save you, okay? But it is pointing us to things that have saved you, things that have already happened. So baptism shows us four things. That's what we're going to see Today. Baptism shows us four things. So, number one, number one, baptism shows us you, you, Christ follower, you have been claimed by Christ. He has laid his claim on your soul. That is what baptism shows us, first of all. Look at verse 11 again of chapter 2. Paul says, "In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ." Now, this can be confusing, but Paul's, Paul's saying, this, you know, circumcision in the Old Testament served as an external sign for the Jewish people that someone belonged to God. So this was this was God's idea, all right? It it showed that the family that this person belonged as one of God's covenant people. Now, Paul says in the New Testament that that practice is no longer necessary. It's no longer necessary to prove that you belong to God. In fact, Paul says in Romans 2, 29, that circumcision is a matter of the heart. So Paul teaches repeatedly and emphatically that it is a heart issue. How do we know someone has been claimed by Christ? Because their heart has changed. That is how you identify with Jesus now. And guess what? Baptism helps us understand that. It shows us you have been marked. You have been set apart by Christ himself. He has claimed you out of this world to follow him with all your life. Because Jesus has ushered in a new way of life. A completely new life. He shows us how to have a real relationship with God. Jesus comes on the scene in the first century in a Jewish world, right, in Palestine, the Roman province there, and he comes on the scene into a place where so many rules had been created. We're going to talk more about this next week, so I don't want to get too far into this. But, but lots of rules had been created that were not in the Bible, that were not part of the Old Testament originally, but these rabbis would make up rules so that people would be extra holy and extra impressive to God. That's the kind of world Jesus walked into when he started his ministry. And he starts preaching a completely different message. A relationship with God is not about how many rules you can follow. It's not about the external signs showing others that you are a good person or trying really hard to live a decent life or maybe being involved with acts of charity in the community. None of those things can build up your resume so highly that you impress God and He says, you know, I think I want, I think I want Him on my team. It's not about that. The new sign, the new way to know that your heart has been changed by Christ is real relationship with God that expresses itself in real life change. It's evidence that something has happened in your heart, but it's the heart issue that Christ changes to begin with. He has claimed you. And all of this is possible because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that baptism so beautifully represents. And that's what we see moving forward as we continue here in these verses. So number one, right, baptism, baptism shows us that we have been claimed by Christ. But number two, baptism shows us that we have died with Christ. You have died with Christ. You know, when you go under the water in baptism, that represents death. It represents death more than anything. But that brings up a a good question. Well, Why why does someone have to die? And whose death is being represented? Well, if you notice in verse 14, what does Paul mention there? He mentions another one of those metaphors. He mentions a record of debt. A record of debt that he says has actual legal demands. But he says this this legal debt that we owe stood against us. It was incriminating evidence against us before a holy God. So in other words, what Paul is saying here is because of our own sin and disobedience to God, we are in Actual, this sounds bad, right? We're in bad legal standing before God, the judge of all creation. That means that our sin, and sin is anything you do or think or believe that goes against God's actual design, His good and perfect design for your life, for this world, the way He created things to be. Right, Sin is anything, any departure from that. It could be anything. It could be a selfish motive in your heart. It could be the way that you pridefully try to insert yourself into positions or ways of doing things. It could be literally anything that is a departure from God's good design. And so Paul says that our sin, it actually... It legally condemns us because God is perfect. He's perfect. And so, anything, guess what? Anything less than perfect is, well, not perfect. So, nobody in this room, myself included, right? None of us have ever come close to impressing God with how good we think we might can be, even in a certain season of your life that you think is good, or maybe you're there now or used to be there. None of it matters. Because of our sin and disobedience to God, no, Paul says we're in bad legal standing before a holy judge who must judge all sin and evil in this world, and he will. Our sin separates us from God forever, therefore. It creates a debt. That's why he's using this record of debt. It creates a debt that we cannot repay. See, that's the dilemma, right? It's a debt that you can't pay. Now, Here's what we do, though, all right? Now, we're all guilty of this to some degree. Christian, non-Christian, there there is a mindset that gets stuck in our brains that we just can't seem to to cross over, right? And it's this. It's this trap. It's this trap of believing that we can pay off the debt we owe to God over time. You're like, I don't believe that. Oh, do you not? We like to think that if if we do something bad, here's how it works in our brains, we do some something bad, okay? So we commit some kind of sin, whatever. We feel guilty about it in our conscience. And what do we need to do? We need to do something good to feel like it kind of cancels it out, right? We need to do something good to kind of outweigh the bad that we've done. And so in a very real way, a lot of us are kind of keeping these tally marks, right? We're keeping a scorecard to see, you know, I think I'm being a little better. My life is morally good or better than the moral bad stuff I've done. And we hope that when we die, we stand before God, the judge, and he'll kind of set our good behavior on one scale and on the other side as our bad behavior. And we just kind of hope, right? Hopeful, wishful thinking that maybe our good stuff will outweigh our bad stuff, and then God will let us into heaven. And so we think over time, if our lives are heading in the right direction, if we're making progress, we're recovering well, we're doing better, we're becoming a more well-rounded version of ourselves, that what we're really doing is we're stacking up that side of the scale and we're essentially paying off the debt we owe to God. But there's one big problem. There's one big problem with that kind of thinking, that mindset. Paul says, no, it's far worse than you think. He says, you are dead in your sin. You're dead in your sin. Look at verse 13. He says, no, we're dead in our trespasses. He says almost the exact same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. There's lots of bad news here okay? This is bad news. We are spiritually dead because we have an insurmountable amount of debt that we cannot repay to God no matter how hard of a good person we try to be. So death is the final verdict. That's it. We are condemned to hell forever. That is the news, all right? All right, let's pray and dismiss. No, I'm I'm just kidding. But wouldn't that be terrible if that was it? If that was all? But look what he's saying again in verse 14. He says that when Jesus died, when Jesus died, look at this, this record of debt, he says what? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, what Paul is saying here in this this metaphor he's, he's using, he's saying this record of debt, was nailed to the cross. What is he referring to? So in the ancient Roman world, the Romans would, would use crosses as the most excruciating, horrific form of torture and death. So it was capital punishment. It was a, a, a torture a thing they created for people to be killed and to be sentenced to this verdict of death. Right. So Jesus experienced that. Right? And the most excruciating pain and and just worse suffering in a moment of death you could ever imagine. A slow death, right? Slow, painful death. So here's what the Roman officials would do. They would write the crime that the person committed and they would nail it to the cross so that anyone walking by in public, right, could see that person hanging there naked and in their shame suffering and bleeding and dying, but above them would be the crime they committed so that everyone would know this is justice. Justice is being served. This person is dying for that crime. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying your crime, all of your crimes, Were written and nailed to the cross of Christ. It was your crimes, your legal debt before God that Jesus was suffering and dying for. When Jesus died, he was dying for your record. Now, do we understand what that means? Jesus was hanging there in physical and mental agony in social shame because of our record, our legal debt, our crimes, all of them. Literally every sin you've ever committed was there. It may have just well been written with your name attached to it, every single one and nailed to where Jesus' blood was dropping. That's what Paul is saying here. I know this is graphic, but it is so real. Every time we sin, every single thing we've ever done was nailed to the cross of Christ. He died, he suffered for that. Every time you have ever looked at someone lustfully, every time you have ever lied or been deceptive to anybody, every time you have ever been manipulative or done anything, anything at all with any selfish motive every single time jesus suffered and died for that do we understand the gravity of this the weight of this he was dying in that moment for that for you so that's not fair that's not fair that that should have been us Not the perfect Son of God. But you want to hear something even more astounding? In a very real way, that was you. That was you being crucified. Look at verse 12. Paul says that's what baptism shows us. What are we? We're buried with Him, he says, in baptism. In Romans 6.3, Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have, been, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So in other words, Paul's saying, when Christ died, you died. In other words, the old you, the sinful you, your old, sinful, selfish person was being crucified right there, right then, but it was actually Jesus absorbing the wrath of God and taking the pain. He was taking the real pain and the real suffering in your place. But you were getting the real benefit, having all of your debt to God completely forgiven. All of it. That's what he says in verse 13, doesn't he? Look, having forgiven us all our trespasses. My former seminary professor, Russell Moore, says... The worst thing that could ever happen to you already has. So he says, what are you afraid of? What is it truly that causes you fear and anxiety that keeps you awake at night? What are you afraid of? What are you worried about? He says, you were already crucified. In Christ Jesus, you are crucified with him. And get this, there's more. Not only did Christ take your record of sin on himself, He gives you, in exchange, His record of perfection and credits that to your account. Like, How amazing is that? So when we put our faith in Christ, our legal standing changes. We move from standing condemned and separated from God to being approved and adopted by God into His family through what Jesus did for us. We have died with Christ. Baptism shows us that. Do you see the richness, the depth of that meaning? Now, not only that, but listen to this. Number three, baptism shows us you have risen with Christ. Verse 12, look at that again. What did Paul say? He says, You were also raised with him. Raised with him. Look again at Romans 6. Wanda read this for us earlier in our worship. Romans 6, 4 and 5, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, guess what? We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul already told us in Colossians 1.18 that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. What did he mean? In other words, Christ's resurrection, when Jesus raised from the grave on Easter Sunday, that would be the first of many more resurrections. His resurrection from the dead makes possible, it paves the way for all who are united to him to follow. This is true, right? This is true in an immediate sense. In other words, we have new life on this earth. The old you is done, buried, and Jesus has raised a new you. You're a new creature in Christ. There's a new mindset, a new heart, a new way of thinking about the world, a new way of living, a new way of decision-making. It's, completely, it's a complete transformation of who you are. That's what Christ is doing, Right? So it's true in that immediate sense in your life now, but this is also true in the future sense, our eternal life. God brings us from death to life. That's what baptism is showing us. And How does that become true? How does this become true for you? Well, in verse 12, look what Paul says. He says, through faith. This is not automatically true for you. You must put your faith in Christ and in this truth. In other words, turn away from thinking you have the power to impress God over time. Remember putting the good stuff on the scale? No, 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 no. You just throw that complete weighing and scoring and scorekeeping. Just throw that out the window. And Paul says, no, it's through faith, not in what you can do, but in the powerful working of God. It is a surrender it is a death to your old mindset and self and a surrender to Christ saying, no, it's not about me. My whole life has been about me. But Jesus, please, I want my life to be about you now. I am tired of living for myself. I want to live for you. It's not your working. Baptism is a, is a surrender of will. It signifies an inability to work your way to God, but also that you trust God and His work instead. You know what baptism really is? When you get in those waters, it's an act of humiliation. Isn't it? In one sense, it is. It's an act of humility because it is by definition a confession to everyone, I can't save myself. There's no way. It's not happening. But this act of humility and self-denial leads to the greatest victory you could ever imagine. Lastly, number four, baptism shows us you are victorious with Christ. Look at verse 15. Paul's last metaphor, symbol he uses. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to Open shame by triumphing over them in him. What is he talking about? You see, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. His perfect life, his death in our place, and him raising from the grave to defeat the power of sin and death forever. It's a crushing defeat. It's a crushing defeat to Satan and the powers of evil that be. Because Christ's death and resurrection, it disarms them. It takes away their lethal weapons. They have no weapon against you that can really take your soul. Our sin is done. Right, Our sin is crucified. Our old selves are already dead. And so we are now, Paul says, raised with Christ to eternal life that Satan cannot even touch. He cannot thwart. He cannot destroy. He is no match for this. You know, Satan's greatest weapon against you is accusation. That's it. He is the great accuser. He loves to condemn. If you're a true follower of Jesus, Satan loves to condemn you. He wants you to believe truly in your heart of hearts that you are not worthy. You are not worthy of God's love. In fact, he wants you to believe that God is super displeased with you, that he does not love you. But because of Christ, Paul says, keep going back to what we know is true. Satan has no incriminating evidence against you because it's all been crucified. It's done. It's at the bottom of the ocean dead. Your old self, your old track record is dead in Christ. He died for it. And so what Paul is saying here, do not miss this. You need to to know verse 15 of Colossians chapter 2. Because of Christ, we are experiencing a victory parade. That is exactly what he's referring to. You see, in the ancient Roman world, you know what they used to do? The Romans would go and they would conquer an enemy. And here's what they would do. They would capture the king of that enemy and they wouldn't kill him. They would capture him. And they would bring him back and whatever surviving soldiers of his army there were. And they would strip them down and parade them through the streets of Rome for everyone to see their shame. That they have been disarmed. That they have no power any longer over the Roman Empire. They are not a threat anymore. Paul says here in verse 15 that even though, as one commentator pointed out, even though this is what appeared to be happening to Jesus, they stripped him down. The Romans stripped him down. They paraded him through the streets of Jerusalem out to a hill called Golgotha, and they hung him in open shame. What appeared to be complete defeat was actually victory, but no one could see it. What was actually happening, Paul says, in that moment and when Jesus raised from the grave. No, Jesus has the final word. He is the one who is triumphing through the streets of Jerusalem and through the streets of heaven and saying and proclaiming, Satan is no longer a threat, my people. Come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. There is no threat. You are safe in the arms of God forever. The cross and the resurrection is a victory parade for us. And your baptism, your baptism is a symbolic glimpse of that spiritual reality. Your baptism is indeed a victory parade. To quote Russell Moore again, he says, the best thing... The best thing that could ever happen to you. What are you you aspiring to? What are you looking for in life? The best thing that could ever happen to you already has. The resurrection of Christ. And therefore, our baptism into Him reminds us and it speaks to us and says, nothing better could ever happen to me. We don't have to live driven by our fears. We don't have to be a slave to the anxieties that pin us down and paralyze us because we think that we need something else in this world to satisfy us, to bring us joy and fulfillment. No, Christ is enough. The worst thing that could ever happen to you already has. The best thing that could ever happen to you already has. Jesus is the perfect, the perfect picture of true salvation. He is. He is victorious. I want to close by reading this, Romans chapter 8. This is just such a beautiful passage of scripture. It's one of my favorite set of verses in the entire Bible. Romans 8 verses 31 through 39. Listen to me now that we're closing with this. Did you come in here today? Did you come unsure of your salvation? Did you come in here today not sure where you stand with God, maybe thinking that it's about scorekeeping? Did you come in here today with your mind and your heart filled with Satan's accusations? You know you know the Lord. You know you love Jesus, but there is just this, condom- this condemnation, right? This condemnation over you, and you just can't seem to shake it. Listen to these words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Is Christ enough, church? Yes. He raises us from death to life.